KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. Welcome back to the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Today I kick off five weeks of horror-themed interview podcasts with an archive interview with Clive Barker from 2005. The first thing that strikes you about Clive Barker is the contrast between the man and his work. There's nothing in his outward demeanor to suggest that he's penned such dark fantasies as The Books of Blood, directed the horrific Hellraiser, and created such perverse sketches as throwing the Christ child over the edge of the world. Barker strikes one as refreshingly sane and immediately likable, not exactly the adjectives you'd use to describe his work. But Barker is articulate and intelligent, and those are qualities that can be found in his works. Over the years, Barker has become something of a renaissance man, as his art expanded to include theater, literature, comic books, filmmaking, and even children's stories. He's even collaborated with Spawn creator Todd McFarlane on two diabolically disturbed lines of toys, Tortured Souls, and The Infernal Parade, both of which sold out and can only be found on eBay and in collectible shops. There's even been talk of the two collaborating on a movie based on the characters created for Tortured Souls. Barker gained literary fame for his groundbreaking Books of Blood and his 1987 bestseller, The Damnation Game. It was in 1987 that Barker also decided to bring his unique, audacious, pull-no-punches brand of horror to the big screen. A drop of blood seeping through the floorboards of an old attic gave rise to a gruesome phoenix in Hellraiser, Barker's feature film debut as writer-director. The film helped redefine the horror genre and catapulted Barker into the limelight. Barker's Frank and his Cenobite pals headed by Pinhead were a new breed of screen villains. They had complexity, were articulate, and in an odd way, seductive. What Barker brought or returned to the genre was a disturbing acknowledgement of the seductive side of evil, and his villains reflected a dark side that we may all harbor in our souls. Barker tries not to pass judgment on his characters, but rather he tries to capture the essence of what it is that fascinates us about horror. His approach is objective, yet he's also able to evoke sympathy for unlikely subjects. In a book like Cabal, he takes us into the mind of a serial killer and unflinchingly details that psyche. He also introduces us to a nether world of monsters that he makes human and sympathetic. Many of his sketches and drawings, check out a recent collection called Visions of Heaven and Hell, offer portraits of evil or horror in which the subjects look directly and unapologetically at you. He confronts the horrific and the unimaginable with a kind of defiantly rational acceptance that makes it seem vividly believable and frequently even erotically charged. Barker's macabre sense of humor, combined with his bold exploration of the darkest recesses of our subconscious, make his artistic endeavors fascinating. Whether the medium is a canvas, a book, or a film, Barker's work offers compelling and haunting nightmare visions unlike anything else. So to creep you out this Halloween month, I decided to take a look at what scares us at the movies. And there's no better guide to this netherworld of fear than Clive Barker. Here's my interview from 2005. As a connoisseur of horror, I'm very happy to welcome my guest, Clive Barker. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Beth. Thanks 
thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. You know, as someone who's created some great works of horror in novels and in films, I just have to ask you, can you remember the first film that ever scared you? Yes, I think it was probably... We, we did not see a lot of movies as a kid. At first, I should, I should probably set that up. I mean, we didn't have a television in the house. Uh, there wasn't a tradition back in the 50s in England of Halloween or any of the sort of the fun stuff that you 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 had of you know jam-packed Halloween periods full of wonderful Universal movies none of that stuff. So um, I would go to the movies once or twice a year with my mom and dad, and and the first movie I remember scaring me was uh, was Sleeping Beauty, Disney Sleeping Beauty. I was probably four or five. And what about that scared you? The fire, the fires that burned the uh, the burn, they burned all the spindles on, and I didn't remember this until much much later when I actually saw the movie on DVD, and it it was like a rec- you know it was like a, a recovered memory. I I so I could remember being in the seat and seeing this and my and my, you know turning. Uh, my face away from the screen. It was a very strange experience. Well, you know, it's funny. We don't normally think of Disney as a creator of horror films, but it seems like so many of us, uh, our first memories of being scared are often connected with Disney, like Absolutely Snow White. Right. He's, he, he was, I think, triumphantly good at, at, at a particularly American mixture of scares and sentimentality, uh, a, a tradition that Spielberg has, has taken to new heights in his career. Well, I think uh, David Cronenberg was someone who had said that Bambi, I think, was the first film that scared him. Well, yes. I mean, I didn't get Bambi much later, but I'm sure it, would have, I'm sure it must have mocked an awful lot of kids psychologically. Um, by contrast, I don't ever remember being scared by books, ever. Books allow you to imagine to the level that you can deal with them and no further. So they're kinda, they're a kinda form of fiction, I think. Movies uh, unreal before you, and you have no choice but to go where the narrative takes you, to read the images that the narrative presents to you. And sometimes those can be deeply distressing, not always for reasons that maybe even the filmmaker would have intended. Well, do you think then that movies kind of control your imagination much more than a novel does in horror? Well, it was John Fowles, the English novelist, who called movies a fascist medium. I, I think that's essentially true. They tell you what to, what to feel and when to feel it. The music track will be doing that if the narrative isn't. Turn down the sound on Jaws and see what happens without John Williams. Mm-hmm. And then John Williams you then turn it up again, and John Williams is telling you, every moment of the movie to be scared and how to be scared and and how it's all going to work for you. Yeah, I think I think movies are are much less co-creator friendly. Uh, I I think of uh, of of uh, books as being uh, very much a, a medium which um invites co-creation. Uh, you 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 have these words on a page and 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 they're going to be coming to life in your imagination in a way that is very particular to you. If you compare your version, let's say, of Narnia or Moby Dick with somebody else's version of Narnia or Moby Dick in the particulars of its 
of its landscapes or the way the, the, the characters look, the creatures look, um, you're going to find all kinds of, of differences, things that have made the book yours. Um, that obviously can't exist in cinema. Cinema demands that you see and feel one particular way. So then what do you think can make for good horror films? What what are kind of the elements it needs? Well, commanding commanding those very things. I mean, it, it's because it's because you are in charge of the viewer's experience as a director that you can that you that it's so easy frankly to scare people. I mean, all you need to do is turn the sound down low for a uh, maybe half a minute, and then turn it up really loud, and and you know have a figure jump out of from out of screen onto screen, and you'll have most of the audience jumping. Now, is that a very sophisticated scare? No, but it can actually get uh, get the audience's adrenaline going and and a sense of excitement going in particularly in a, a large audience i think these movies work better with with large audiences rather than viewed at home yeah then it becomes uh, it can become quite a, a, a an experience building scare on scare on scare this is the exorcist uh, genius you know the first big scare is a silly little thing you know she goes upstairs she thinks she hears rats she has a candle in her hand, and it suddenly flares. And there's a noise, and it suddenly flares, and, and the audience jumps. I don't know how deep into the movie we are, maybe 20 minutes. But our hearts are fluttering a little now, and the movie will gradually intensify our reasons for having fluttering hearts. So what do you think that separates it or, or, you know, improves a film going from this level of kind of your basic something jumps out at the dark at you yeah. and that level of more sophisticated humor? I mean, uh, horror. Well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting Freudian slip back <laughs> right there. I have to say that it, it, it comes down to our old friend's subtext. It's about what is the movie about beneath its costume of makeup and cheap frights. Is it, you mentioned Cronenberg earlier in our conversation, and David has, has I think, been extraordinarily uh, good at marrying, in his early movies anyway, frights of a very basic kind, gross-outs, in fact. Your basic issue, Grand Guignol, with something else, something that stimulates the, the head, something that makes you think about the movie after... Uh, after you stepped away from it. So what do you think our, our fascination is with horror? Because it seems like we almost need it. We do need it, I think. Uh, and this is, this is the big puzzle, isn't it? We need it. We need it as much as, as we ever have, even though our news uh, reports are uh, perhaps more horrific than they've ever been. Uh, I get a lot of fan mail from soldiers in Iraq about how much they love to watch, uh, you know, the Hellraiser movies or Nightbreed or read the books, the horror, the horror stuff that I write. They also, interestingly, and uh, maybe this is a yin and yang thing, respond very strongly to the, the work for, for younger readers that I've written. Uh, the Aberat books and Thief of Always, these are books that they also talk fondly of. It's almost as though either extreme will do. What won't do is the middle. 
Well, and do you feel that there's also kind of a rush that you get from going to a film that does scare you? Oh, well, yes. It's just such a disappointment that so few of them give you that rush anymore. I don't think that's me, you know, being an old fuddy-duddy saying that, you know, movies were scarier in my day. They were. We've had recently a a lot of, I think, very stylishly made but very empty PG-13 pictures no horror movie worth its name should be PG-13. It's got to be an R, hasn't it? I mean, we, we've got to be taken to, to some taboo area, some place where forbidden images are put before us. If we're not on the ride to the forbidden, what are we on the ride for? Now, these soldiers who've been writing you, I'm just curious. I mean, they're probably experiencing a certain kind of horror on a very realistic level. Well, that was my point, really. Exactly right, yeah. So what kind of um, things are they telling you in these letters in terms of their appreciation for your work? They just like monsters. And I think, I think the, the, the love of monsters is a sort of universal. Maybe what, what monsters do is allow us to find a focus for our fear, a place where the fear can go, a vessel. And into that vessel go all the things which, which you know, uh, wake us up at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, in, in, a, in a chilly sweat. And because they're all put in one place, safely put in one place, they can be dealt with there. Do you think that it also offers some sort of catharsis for them, a you know, vicarious way of getting rid of some of those demons? No. <laughs> I, I think the catharsis theory doesn't really play. I think the way, when, you know, when Aristotle is talking about catharsis, he's talking about something much more significant than the cheap thrill um, a universal movie is going to give us. But do you think that horror does serve some sort of psychological need for us, if it's not catharsis? I I think there's a reason why young people go to see horror movies. I certainly think, we're back to that issue of the forbidden, certainly, uh, testing the boundaries. Uh, There's been some very good writing about the initiation element of, of a horror movie. Dare you see it? Can you see it? I remember very, very powerfully at the age of uh, 15 or 14 or 15 going to see a double bill of Psycho and The War of the Worlds, the original one, the good one, seeing them uh, with a friend of mine coincidentally called Norman, who who was taller and and rather larger than I was and was able to pass himself off as somebody who was 18 or older. So he bought the tickets, and we went in, we snuck in as 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds to see something we shouldn't have been seeing. And the sense of the forbidden act, going to see this stuff, particularly Psycho, this is not the first time Psycho had been to my hometown of Liverpool. This was, if I was 15, this would have been 1968, and I think Psycho was made in 1960. Uh, So it must have been a second or third run when it had been hooked up with, with War of the Worlds, which was, of course, was a color picture and, again, cycles black and white. And it was really a, a wonderful double bill for me, a wonderful... It could not have been more perfect for a horror fantasy writer to to be introduced 
to the forbidden experience of horror movies and science movies, science fiction movies, all in one glorious night. <laughs> now, did you also stop taking showers after seeing that? No, I did, we didn't have a shower in our house. Uh, it was bath water or nothing, and it was usually my father's bath water. <laughs> You know, I've had a chance to interview a number of different horror directors, and one thing that struck me about a lot of them is they seem so well-adjusted and kind of untroubled by nightmares themselves. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, do you feel that you get to kind of get rid of fears by, by writing about them? Do you suffer from nightmares yourself? I don't suffer from nightmares usually, but I think one of the things that's very hard to do is is really be in anybody else's head and... Uh, I'm I'm a little leery of saying, oh, well, I'm different from the average fellow because I do this, this, and this, and this is what I feel like. Everybody is different from everybody else, it seems to me. And the experience of being Beth is unique to Beth, and we and I cannot know much about it. So I'm I'm very cautious of of making grand statements like, yes, well, of course I I feel less fear than than you know, Harry, Tom, or, or, or Joe, because I I get to write it down. I don't know what fear means to those people. I'm never in their heads. I can never be in their heads. What I do know is that when I look at the culture around me, I see people doing all kinds of things to make themselves uh, obsessive things, to make themselves uh, a little happier in in. in what must therefore be an unhappy condition, being human, overeating, smoking, uh, drinking themselves into oblivion, drugs, you know, now reaching down into into the preschool practically. Um, there is something about the human experience which is um, frightening. And uh, we are so we are so much not in control of ourselves. A friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, was going along with his life very happily, and a few weeks ago was told he had stomach cancer. Changed his life in one sentence. I uh, had talked to David Cronenberg once, and he said that Martin Scorsese was afraid to meet him. Uh, you know, this is the yeah, director of Taxi Driver. I heard that too. Do you sometimes feel that people expect you to be more like your work? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think they do. And I think they're always, always sort of a little surprised when they, they find that I'm not, you know, going for the jugular with a, with a Stanley knife. Um, but I think that it only takes a moment for them to realize how absurd that expectation is. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, you know, who knows what's going on behind my, my, my eyes, of course, you know. I could be plotting all kinds of terrible things, um, but I'm pretty socialized as long as I keep taking my pills, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to ask you, do you feel that horror has changed over the years in films um, in terms of the things that, cha- that, that scare us? Not enough. It hasn't, it hasn't changed enough in my estimation. I, I, I think we we should be bolder in our in our confrontations with with fear and the so, our sources of fear. When I wrote the books of blood, which were my first uh, venturings into this area, twenty years ago, one of the first things I did was drag sex, kicking and screaming into into horror fiction, where it had been 
conspicuous by its absence. And yet it remains conspicuous by its absence, except in the most coy, giggly kind of way in in our contemporary horror movies. I think we have a lot of a lot of um, pretty scared filmmakers out there, actually scared in in all the wrong ways, scared of their producers, scared of of, of not getting their films made. And you know, you you mentioned Cronenberg a couple of times in in, in this conversation, and David is a an, an honorable exception to this is David has gone his own sweet, uh, yeah, sweet way throughout his career and uh, made movies that uh, didn't always do well at the box office, but he could proudly say were unlike any other kind of movie that was being made. And how often can you say that about movies? So often movies these days resemble warmed over versions of something that was better 20 years ago. Do you see anybody else besides Cronenberg who does get it right, uh, either in the U.S. or England or even overseas, like in Asia? Yeah, I think we've seen a whole bunch of of Japanese and and Korean um, filmmakers get it right. I think Del Toro gets it right, Uh, you know, his Spanish movie, uh, um... Uh, the Devil's Backbone, for instance, was, was I thought, an extraordinary movie. Uh, Kronos, another movie by uh, Del Toro, again, really wonderful, made for a quarter of a million dollars or something like that. I, I think sometimes um, the uh, the slickness of the American product uh, undercuts it. The remake of um, the Amityville Horror and... Um, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre were, in my mind, undone by their slickness. The uh, the remake of the Amityville Horror had a, a a star who looked like he was he was so built up. He looked like he was, uh, you know, ready for the Mister Universe contest, and could certainly have uh, wrestled any demon to the ground, face to face. It was a it, it was a Hollywood product, and it felt that way. Well, what about something like Land of the Dead with George Romero coming back to the horror genre? Well, I like George, and I like the zombie. I like zombie movies, and I like that movie more. I think for sentimental reasons than because it was it added a huge amount to the mythology which he's created. My favorite of those movies will always remain Dawn of the Dead. I think. Are there any films that scare you now? Uh, very few, very few. I'm much more likely to be, I'm not even going to say scared, moved moved in that interesting, dark way by, by something that appears on the news, frankly, than I am by, by uh, movies. I've been watching horror movies now. Well, when did I say, when did I say 1968 was when I, when I snuck into Psycho. Um, that's, you know, almost 40 years ago. I've been watching these movies for a long time. There are very few tricks left up, very few sleeves, I suspect, which I don't crow about at all. I'm just rather disappointed by, frankly. I'd much prefer to be a virgin again, you know, and and be able to, to enter the... Uh, I remember, for instance, uh, suddenly comes back to me as we talk about it. I remember going to see the first Cronenberg movie. Why am I not remembering its name? Um, they came from within. Yeah, they came from within, 
its reputation had my hands clammy before the movie started to play. Unfortunately, there aren't any movies around that do that anymore. You're both a filmmaker and a novelist, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, is there a different way that you approach horror in the different mediums? Oh, yes, absolutely. And I'm I'm preparing some paintings for an exhibition here in Los Angeles for later in the year, and, and there are some paintings that are, I think, um, horror paintings that I'm making for this exhibition. And so there's there's three places that I'm I'm working, you know, with with the notion of horror. And yes, absolutely, there are different ways uh, I approach the the whole uh, the whole process. Again, uh, you know, I would go back to that issue of of of, of how much can happen in the audience's head in a book, how much more room you have to to mind meld with the uh, with the audience to to share the audience's uh, imaginative reserves and play a little enjoy each other's company a little uh, movies are what they are what they are they play out the same way um you leave the cinema, a new bunch of audience members comes in, and the movie plays out in exactly the same way. Books aren't like that. They 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 uh, they love our intimate contact. Now you brought up your painting, and I just want to say there's one drawing I saw of yours that's of a, a young boy with his hands like firmly shoved into his pockets and looking straight up into a monster that yes. is ready to devour him. Yeah. And it just seems like that kind of sums up your approach to horror. This kind It of... sort of does. Thank you for that. Yes, that's a, that is a very old painting. That painting was, it's a black and white. It's a, it, it, it's a brush drawing. I want to say that's 1977, 1976. But the boy is looking up at the monster as if to say, you know, I'm, I'm not really that scared of you. And the monster has it, has it, which is sort of vaguely dragon-like, has its arms uh, crossed on its chest um, like a really, you know, uh, uh, irritated parent <laughs> um, who somehow or other can't get the, uh, the kid to be scared of him. And, and yes, I think that's very much my relationship with horror. It's go on, scare me, scare me. I very much want that. Uh, uh, that appetite has not gone away. I turned 53 uh, four or five days ago, and I am still waiting to be, um, I'm still hoping to be, to be scared uh, every time I go see a horror movie. I mean, the, the appetite remains intact. Well, I want to thank you very much for being my guest today, and you are still someone who is able to scare us, and I think that's wonderful, and please keep doing that. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure, and I do mean that. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Today kicks off my month-long series of interviews about different aspects of horror, So look for more coming up this month, including episodes on Reanimator the Musical, The Psychology of the Babadook, and finding out what some of the first films that scared people are. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.